AA Beyond Belief is a podcast by, for, and about people who have found a secular path to sobriety in Alcoholics Anonymous. John H. has been sober since January of 1987, and he's a founding member of the We Agnostics group in Washington, D.C., a group which has been meeting since 1988. The entirety of John's experience in Alcoholics Anonymous has been primarily with his secular AA group, though in his early days he did attend meetings at a so-called traditional group, but it was much more liberal and tolerant than many of the AA meetings one might encounter today. Reflecting back on his recovery, John has concluded that there were five key elements to his sobriety. Making a decision, attending meetings, sharing, abstinence, and helping others. In this episode, I'll have a discussion with John about these thoughts and hopefully come out of the experience a little wiser, or at least no worse for wear. Well, John, how are you? I'm doing fine today. How are you, my friend? I'm doing fantastic, and I've been looking forward to talking to you. I've read your articles a number of times, and I've been giving this stuff some thought lately. And uh, also, the the talk that we posted on uh, Wednesday um, gave me a lot to think about. So it all kind of works out well. You know, I I hope that I framed that right in in the introduction that you. Yeah, well, I I went to conventional meetings longer than anticipated. You know, it was. Uh, uh, a noon meeting, I think I was discussing it with you earlier, at a very liberal African-American church in D.C., very famous place, AME Church in Northwest Washington. Actually, it was Frederick Douglass's church, very historic place. And uh, that meeting was extremely liberal, and I think some people from some other parts of the country might have even thought they were at a secular meeting if they went there. But the meeting itself was framed by the 12 steps, and it was, they did have a big book meeting once a week, which I didn't attend. They had a steps meeting once a week, which I didn't attend. And uh, I had a lot of old friends there um, that I had met very early on in in my sobriety. And uh, I mainly viewed it as a good noon break from my labors here these days in my home office, in the old days from my office downtown. And it was, to me, it was more of a social hour. And in the end, I had to totally break from Alcoholics Anonymous, the conventional part of Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, because I felt I was being a hypocrite. And uh, I mentioned that before and then in other places. I won't go into it in detail, but, you know, just going to a social hour wasn't enough for me. And, of course, all this time I've had my secular meeting on Sundays, which I was just at today. And uh, uh, it, I, I, I came to the conclusion that AA in any form, even its most liberal form, no longer fit. And when I started getting involved in what we now call secular AA, uh, at our first convention in 2014, which you, of course, attended uh, in Santa Monica, my determinations about conventional AA 
got stronger and stronger and stronger until I finally had to admit that I was inconsistent and hypocritical by having anything to do with them whatsoever. And I no longer do. So all I have to do with is uh, secular AA and its offshoots and what I would hope would evolve to what we might call secular recovery, which of course we talked about last time we chatted on a podcast. So that's a, a little long, but maybe is a better way of framing where I'm at right now. So yeah. And I found it interesting that you felt alienated from a, a traditional AA fairly early on. You wrote that you were attending meetings initially on the weekdays at a group that wasn't reading how it works, that wasn't particularly dogmatic, but then you started going to meetings on weekends and you were attending meetings at this group that read how it works. And then, and I, I think you wrote that you just felt alienated. And that is about the time that you um, started attending the We Agnostics group in DC. Is that, is that right? Well, that's when it was about when it was formed that summer before and again, I'm being redundant because I've said this elsewhere. That summer before, I came very close. It was the last time I came really close to taking a drink, which was the summer before the, of the formation of the meeting in September of 88. Sometime that summer, I got real close to drinking because I was in such despair over what I had finally realized was the point of AA as I saw it, which was developing some sort of God consciousness. And as I mentioned to you offline, I basically would rather be dead than be forced to be part of something that required or even implied that I had to develop such a consciousness because I've never had that consciousness. And I'm not going to go and be that much of a hypocrite and untrue to myself in terms of my even my own survival i value my own integrity personal integrity more than that so there's not very many places in the united states or canada or really in the world where there has been a secular meeting going on since you know 1988 i mean you you're, you're talking dc new york uh, i think yeah. maybe some places uh, in florida sh- sh- no chicago was the, the back to the mid 70s our founder of our DC meeting was first exposed to Quad A. I think there's a meeting that still might be around the University of Chicago somewhere. I believe that's the one Tom went to, and that was uh, mid to late 1970s. And then, of course, Charlie Polchair, Polichair, the late Charlie, he started the meeting in West Hollywood, I think, 81, 82. And in, you know, in, you know, unison or in parallel with that, some of the older meetings that our dear friend Vic was going to back in those days. But still, there was only in those early days, there was only a handful. Actually, I found one in New Orleans back in 1989, 1990, strangely enough. And uh, I'd really like to find out if the people going to, if there are any of the people that are going to Secular AA now down there were interested or were involved in that meeting in the late 80s that I recall going to in the Garden District in the basement of a church. It was kind of a wild meeting, I remember that night. So there were little bits and pockets here and there, but nothing like what we have today. And of course, no way of communicating with each other. No, we didn't. No. You only knew the other guy unless you showed up there. So. Right. 
So, you know, it's understandable to me that, um, because I've had the, I've had the experience of, you know, going to AA, but to a traditional meeting for, you know, 25 years before I helped start the We Agnostics group in Kansas City. And um, I had that experience of alienation. And then I've, and then I've gone through a, oh, a period of uh, change in, in my thinking that is still, still ongoing. But you, you know, you had already really fully evolved, you know, over a period of decades at the We Agnostics Group in D.C. So now you're meeting all these people from uh, all over who are just now, you know, walking out of their traditional A group into a secular meeting, but they're bringing with them their, how they're deciding to interpret what they learned in AA. And Yeah, and I, a lot of that I find very sad. Yeah, you just kind of discarded that language. You, you, you looked at the history of what was really going on, and these are steps that were adapted from the Oxford group, which was a Christian fundamentalist movement in the 1930s. And it, the entire purpose of that group was to bring people to God. And even when you read the literature of Alcoholics Anonymous and the big book, it, that, it says that that's the purpose, basically. So, so well, you know, I mean, it was it's, it started with Christian witness, and you know, that's in the most extreme form in Akron. Even when AA started, you had to do a Christian witness on your knees in Doctor Bob's kitchen before he let you go to the meeting. Yeah. So you kind of so, took a look I mean, back, the, I guess, at your experience, and you described it as one would in your own words of what actually was taking place. And that's why you came up with these five key elements, you know, making a decision, attending meetings, sharing abstinence and helping others. And right. And I, I didn't, excuse me for interrupting, but I didn't come up with a, I was sort of, I was doing these elements, but I didn't really come up with them and sit down and not codify, but describe in the way that I do in the articles I didn't sit down and actually describe those until very recently. And what got me to do that was all of this stuff I see about reinterpreting Wilson and Smith's Holy of Holies 12 Steps, which, of course, is what that talk was about in Toronto. And I don't need to go into that. Anybody can scroll over there and listen to that stuff if they want to. But... You know, when I saw all of this codification going on, I said, what is this? Why do we need to adapt something that's, to me, you know, uh, just an adaptation of uh, Christian holy writ into so-called secular language? Then what I saw going on was really sort of, you know, it might had had some of the elements of that, but was really something else, which is where these sort of five elements come from. Right. And you begin with making a decision. Oh, yeah. Well, that's the most interesting part of the whole thing. Because uh, I spent years knowing that I was an alcoholic, uh, at least 12 or 13 years in my young days, knowing that I was an alcoholic. But it wasn't until I was 38 years old, I'm 71 now, wasn't until I was 38 years old that I actually made what I now know to be 
uh, a real decision about what was occurring in my own life. And that really astonishes me because I had a lot of knowledge about what was occurring in my own life. And I sort of openly acknowledged to myself and even some others, of course, not professionally or anything like that, but I did openly acknowledge to family members and friends that, yeah, I'm an alcoholic. I knew that. I acknowledged that. I didn't try to hide that in particular, except, of course, in that professional context that we know we have to be careful in. So it wasn't knowing or even saying. It was really understanding at depth and making a decision about my drinking. And once I had made that final decision, which for me had to be a life and death decision, I was, you know, such a hard head. And, you know, I, I, I had a lot of fun drinking until my last 12 or 18 months when the level of misery got to the point where it damn near killed me. But I'm not one of these people that was miserable from the first drink and, you know, sitting in a corner somewhere unhappy all the time. I thought, at least I thought I was having a hell of a good time in my own bohemian universe downtown in northwest Washington uh, before the place got hideously expensive. You could actually live sort of a bohemian, low-cost life down there. That life is no longer possible, of course. But in those days, in the 70s and 80s, early 80s, it was. And, uh, you know, it really had to be the last gasp for me. But once I made that decision, it was it was such a relief to find a like-minded group of people who told me the same thing. You make this decision, and then here's what happens. And being in this liberal, and this is 1987 when I walked in the door, there's, there was no secular meeting here. That wasn't until 18 months later. Uh, I was just presented with what was there, but I was fortunate that there were people that knew me. I knew a lot of people in D.C. There were people that knew me. Uh, I had some people around me that told me, well, it's great. We're glad to see you here. All you have to do is not drink and go to these meetings. And they didn't have much else to say to me um, at that point directly. It was, I had to find out all this other stuff about what AA was really about sort of on my own because the nice people that were dealing with me knew that if they tried to sell me that stuff face to face, that I was just going to walk away. Uh, and this is a challenge for us because we don't have any God to hang any of this decision on now, do we, Chuck? No. And you talked to, you wrote, you know, that, you know, Bill, Bill Wilson, I guess, thought that his um, decision that he made came from a white bush, white light experience, God experience, whatever. That was but, a, a belladonna. It's right. known as belladonna intoxication. Right. Yes, white light. But in fact, what was really going on is, as you put it, and I think this is, this is true for anyone coming to grips with addiction is just recognizing um, a need for self-preservation that that these patterns that we've been engaged in were were destructive were killing us but there is a mystery as to why some people will get there and some people won't isn't it 
Oh, it's that, that, you know, I don't believe in any form of hocus pocus in this world. I believe in the observable uh, universe, the scientific method. My favorite Englishman of all time, even greater than Shakespeare, is Charles Darwin. You know, I really, at depth, believe in that view of, of the world. And, you know, we're not going to talk about dialectical materialism, but there are you know, there are philosophical systems that go directly to that. But this one, I've sat in meetings all these years, and absolutely the people who make it long-term are people who have made a decision about their drinking, and they know that they have to reinforce that decision over and over and over. I was sitting next to a, a young man in the meeting today. He's got about six, eight months and, you know, he mentioned this thing about having finally made a decision about his drinking. He's a young man in his early 30s, I guess. And I said, well, it's great that you made a decision. The only secret that I have about this is that you've got to make the decision over and over and over again. And that, you know, making a decision is great today. But if you don't reiterate or somehow reinforce that decision tomorrow, that's very problematic. So that's for the only part of this thing. I mean, I, I'm not saying that I've figured everything out because of course I haven't figured it all out. We've got scientists and others coming to address us here uh, next year at our convention talking about, you know, the science of all of this. But uh, as far as my own practical, non-professional experience, this is the only part that I really don't have a handle on in terms of imparting that knowledge, if somehow we could impart a knowledge to the secular person that the starting point for us is a decision point, not a God point, not a revelation point, not a conversion, not this bullshit about personality change or any of that other absurd crap, because all we're about is behavior modification, actually, uh, at least in my opinion. But how can we do that? That's our real challenge, to transmit the essence of our recovery without the formulations involved in the Oxford Group 12 Steps. Because you ask one of these people from a conventional meeting to explain their recovery, they'll just pull out that list and start going through it, won't they? And you think, you think that's pretty important, don't you, to be able to transmit our message in our own way without, without the baggage of the 1930s. Right. Yeah. Right. I mean, if you can convince someone that your need to make a decision about your uh, drinking was of paramount importance to your survival, right, without making any judgments about their survival, I mean, we explicitly imply as secular people that their survival is something that's up to them, right? But if we could maybe suggest a tool that we used, which is this possibly this making a decision business, then, you know, you can give up despair. I mean, if you can give up despair, despair about your condition, and know that I made a decision today and I can make 
a decision tomorrow. This self-reinforcing death cycle of continual slipping in and out of any program you might be associated with uh, can be arrested. And there are people in the room that can tell you that in fact and in truth, it was arrested. Now, this is exactly, in some ways, it's kind of ironic because it's sort of like what the religious ones do by saying, well, I did this and I got back, you see? Quid pro quo, is that a phrase that we know? I've heard it before. In the, is that in the air, <laughs> you know? Something for something, you know? You know, make a decision and get something. I think that's sort of in the air these days. I think most people actually know what that phrase means now. So, it, you know, it's like it's like that, you know? I did something and I got once Once you've made that decision, that leads you to your next your next part of this, which is reinforcing it through the attendance of me at meetings. And that might actually be the answer for some of those people who might still be on the fence. They go to meetings. Well, you know, I mean, if I'm just sitting in, when I was the hallmark of the last months of my drinking, I was always a social kind of bar drinker type loud. You can imagine me being loud and somewhat aggressive and obnoxious and stuff like that. You might see that somewhere in me. But, you know, yeah, I went from that, you know, sitting and having, having my fun and my endless debates sitting on my bar stool to sitting in my pretty nice place I was living in, staring down at a 1.75 liter bottle of vodka, which is, I hated vodka. And when I was coming out of blackouts, looking at my feet and seeing an almost drained bottle of that swill at my feet, I knew I was in some deep, deep trouble. And that's what came from just sitting alone and not doing anything about the problem. I found when I started going to meetings and I met like-minded people and I saw positive life stories evolving from those individuals having made their decision and listening to the stories of how their decision led to this, that, and the other thing down the road that they didn't have before, that was just extremely important. And that, of course, is very similar to what every alcoholic does everywhere that goes to any meeting, no matter what you call it. But unlike the conventional meetings, and certainly when our when our secular meetings started up here in 88, what we get, at least what I get from a secular meeting is the efficacy of those stories without any of the veneer, any of the hocus pocus, any of the pablum and bullshit involved in ascribing your state in life to something that I know does not exist. We get our reinforcement from the actual narrative and the actual stories and the actual experience without some sort of fantasy overlay. And to me, reality is always more effective than fantasy. Absolutely, me too. And I'd like to, yeah, I'd like to think in my wild imaginings that maybe when we finally figure out 
what are, since we're getting to be over 500 meetings now and a lot more people were involved than were ever involved in the past, I wish that, you know, some smart person that knows about statistics could somehow figure out one day what our success rate in the meetings that we uh, have attended and promote are compared to other methods and modalities of, of, of getting sober. I like to think that maybe reality is better than fantasy. And for our core population, focusing on that reality and the meetings and the development of people's lives that way would be more efficacious overall than, you know, the fear and the pain and the guilt and the other stuff I see creeping through all this conventional verbiage that I even see being transmitted sometimes on our closed Facebook pages and elsewhere in secular recovery. Yeah, I see that pain and it just, whenever I see that pain, I just, it just, actually my next, if I can get around to it, I've got to go out overseas next month and do some work. But once I get back, when I get, when I get, hopefully when I get around to it, I want to write something about the unnecessary nature of all this pain I'm seeing out there still. That, that really upsets me when I see people going through that. It's very real, um, you know, because I, I went through that, as you know, um, 25 years at a group and then uh, coming out as an atheist and not being welcomed anymore at that group, um, having people correct me constantly and feeling that, you know, I'm going to have to leave AA. And then uh, for me, what happened, it was just a very gradual um, letting go of the old language, but it's a, it was a very gradual thing at first. So now it's kind of snowballing, but that's what people I think are going through. They leave, they find, they find out about this secular, I guess, movement within Alcoholics Anonymous. And right. it takes them time, I think, to let go of the old language. I'm still, I've pretty much rejected terms like, you know, higher power, character defects, you know, that sort of thing. Um, why can't we reject, excuse me, for why can't we just get over these initials AA? Uh, well. <laughs> I think a lot of good could come if we just got over the initials AA and any mention of the big book or the 12 steps at all, I think we'd all be a lot better off. I'm trying not to mention those initials whenever I possibly can. Well, you know, it might happen I know simply because topic, well, that's go. all right, but it might happen simply because AA just might not last. <laughs> you know, if they don't change, if, if, if it doesn't change, I just don't see it working. I just, you know, I told you about the meeting I was at last night and I just made some, some very gentle criticisms of the big book, just suggesting that, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of dated and, um, it, that those comments were not met well. People want to cling to that. And I don't know how, how, um, that's ever going to change. I, I don't know if, if it doesn't change, I don't see much of a future. You, you can't, you can't, you can't move into a new century with a book from the beginning of the last century. I don't think. Well, you know, I'm not going to be there. I don't, I don't think I could stand that Detroit thing this year. Uh, I've been thinking about going just to see what our people get up to. And what no, you should go stuff. if you can. I, I can't go. I, it's just too much to do do two in one um, year. But right. you should go if right. you can swing right. it. You, you want to you see what it's like. Just go there and see 
what it's a it's a good experience to see what it's like. I went to my first one there in 1990, and then another one, and a couple others in the 90s, I think, and was supposed to go to the last one in Atlanta, but I got ill, unfortunately, couldn't go. But there's tens of thousands of those people aren't giving up. I can take you to a back to basics meeting I wrote about a few years back in Agnoska, I think it was, I wrote a uh, article about back to basics. I went to the local back to basics meeting here in Bethesda, Maryland, one of the highest income areas and most educated areas of the United States. It was filled with people in their expensive shoes looking at that, you know, fucking back to basics tome and reciting Wally P's crap word for word. And that was here. I mean, that, that those evangelical Christian movements are everywhere. And, you know, I don't think that part of that, whatever they're going to call it, I don't think those people are going anywhere. They're a mutually reinforcing fundamentalist Christian loop, and they will be around for a long, long time. So I'm not waiting for anything to change. I'm not waiting for them to change. I don't care whether they change or not. I, I couldn't care less what they do. Right? What I'm worried about is what we do as secular people in a secular way where we've come up with some ideas that we believe will work. We wouldn't be going to these secular recovery meetings unless we thought they worked better for us. We should focus more on why they work better for us and what we could do to improve the process for others. And you kind of did right. that when you wrote about the, the meetings, the attending meetings aspect of this, because you wrote what it did for you, and it was the same thing it did for me, and I think it's pretty much everybody. It, you get this calming effect from the meeting. Yes. You know? Yes. You went, you've gone to a place where your condition is not only understood, but a solution for that condition, which we'll talk about in a minute, which is abstinence, is what is being propounded. So that if you know that you can abstain and your life is going to improve and you're not in the valley of doom 24-7, then you're, you know, of course, the, the, I, I very seldom went to a meeting where I was angrier, angrier walking out than I was walking in. Uh, there have been a few times where that has happened, but certainly never in my secular meeting has that occurred. Yeah, fortunately for uh, me, it only has happened later in sobriety. During those initial, the, when I really needed the meetings, I guess it wasn't bothering me so much, but... but uh, yeah. and, you know, I mean, these days, if I ever encounter that stuff, I just roll my eyes and I say, what is this shit? <laughs> and just sort of, you know, sort of just sort of slough it off. But yeah, it is more serious for others, which is yeah. what I why I see all this suffering on the closed Facebook groups. But yeah, really it's, a, it's a calming effect. It's, it's really a replacement for drinking. It's, it's what I needed. I mean, I, I had no peace of mind at all. I mean, I was, I was scared to death of what the, what I was going to have to deal with as a result of my drinking. I was looking at some jail time, you know, I, I was, I was, I was not right. a happy camper. Right. right. But let's, let me take one second about this thing about meetings. And I don't know, I don't think I touched on it in the article. Maybe I did sort of, parenthetically touch on it somewhere in the article. But meetings are not another addiction. It's not, I didn't find meetings to be a substitute, one addiction for another. 
I get the impression, if you go to these AA clubs around the country, I used to travel around the United States all the time, constantly on airplanes everywhere, every nook and cranny in this country. And I would go to these conventional meetings and many years ago and years past, and I'd see people hanging around these AA clubs that looked like they lived there, okay? They looked like that that was their entire existence was somehow revolving around these fucking meetings. And, you know, I, I wouldn't suggest that people do this because I never suggest that people not go to meetings. But my own experience is when for the better part of five years I was living in Moscow, where my current wife and I met, and a lot of things happened there. And for a lot of reasons I won't go into, I could not go to the one or two English-speaking meetings that were there. It just wasn't possible uh, to do that. And uh, I found that the things that I had learned and the people that I had met were portable, and I carried them with me. And I've been in all kinds of situations in all kinds of countries all over the world and never found an occasion where I had to drink. And a lot of that, I think, has to do with the knowledge and the understanding and the wisdom of the people that I was able to care, carry with me. Yeah, you know, I could actually relate to that. And when you wrote about that, when you were in Russia and you couldn't, you couldn't attend meetings. No, I just, I, you wouldn't believe that place. But you know, the, 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 uh, the bottom line is, is that attending meetings is a great thing and I do it whenever I can. I go to one brick and mortar meeting a week and I go to one online meeting a week. And for me these days, that seems to be sufficient and very comfortable to do. And I like that and I do that and I do that whenever I'm possible. Whenever it's possible, I was even lying in the hospital a year or so ago and attended a Sunday online meeting because I thought I needed one, all right? Uh, my laptop sitting in a damn hospital room. So, you know, it like, it's great. But, you know, people shouldn't, yeah, people shouldn't be terrorized by meetings. No. Oh, I missed a meeting. Oh, I'm God, gonna no. Go die. Oh, no. That's, that's Absolutely not. I, you hear that most. Yeah, I know. I, I've, I've seen some guts. very Back in the old days, I've seen some very subtle uh, guilt tripping of people, and sometimes not so subtle if they hadn't been seen at meetings and so forth. That, that doesn't well, happen at our group. It, um, yeah, it does come from some stuff that's sort of true, though, and that is I've heard it many times uh where somebody says and then i stopped consciously stopped going to meetings and that i've heard lead to all kinds of very unfortunate outcomes but that's different than either you know that's different than being a slave to the meeting. oh yeah oh yeah and and i think the whole purpose of <laughs> is to actually live your life in the world you know so, right right you know. i mean I, I i didn't give up the slavery of alcohol for another form of bondage i mean yeah. i just i well, just that's what i like to, to see that. at my home group that's actually what i'm watching happening it's you know um our group here in KC is full of people who've never been to a traditional aa meeting who've never cracked open the big book they don't know any. They don't know any other type of AA, and so I I would watch these people come in, and I'm thinking, hmm, they need, they should be doing, <laughs> they, they aren't doing this the way I know to do it, but 
I would watch what was going on, John, and they were staying sober. They were making friends. They were getting their lives together and they were happy. And I thought, well, hell, it's working. They don't need anything else. Yeah, well, we're, <laughs> in the fullness of time, we'll, uh, I, we're just still in the beginning stages of this secular meetings being a national or international phenomenon. It'll be really interesting. Uh, I hope I live long enough to see that because there's a whole generation of people coming up in AA now at these secular meetings who have never had the experience of the big book and all that other crap. It'll be interesting to see what happens to them when they're like yeah. 20 or 30 years sober. Well, it will be. I don't think I'm going to have that opportunity. No, I don't think I will again. either. But anyway. Miracles, miracles <laughs> do happen. So where, where are we, my friend? Well, we were talking where, about, where we were talking about we attending this? meetings and the benefit of that. And I guess, you know, that kind of go, goes right along with the sharing aspect that takes place in well, the Well, yeah. I mean, if that critical communication, there's a kind of communication that you get in a meeting that you don't get elsewhere. There's something there. I never meditated in my life, right? And I don't think I ever will. I have friends where they tell me that the, uh, you know, some forms of secular meditation work for them. I'm not going to debate that at all. But I have sat there many times over the years quietly, which is very unusual for me to be quiet, sitting there quietly listening to stuff that seems almost totally unrelated to my own experience and own life and own background and coming away from that somehow not only calmed but you know educated in a way that i wouldn't become i wouldn't be open enough to be educated to some of the stuff that i hear unless i was there i know myself well enough to know that the noise of the world and the noise of my own head and the noise of what we have to go through every day just to be alive is such that I wouldn't be paying attention in that way unless I was there listening to the sharing of others, which draws me back as important as our own ego is and our own sharing is. The essence of it, what we really learn, is from the sharing of others. Absolutely. And that that's a weird concept to me because I'm so ego-driven. Yeah. And, so, it, and from, I, I experienced that in the very first meeting. It was two things. And you described it when you were talking, when you wrote about the woman who was very well put together, oh, looked yeah. like she was just, you know, you couldn't imagine. Yeah. And she shared the story of just these horrendous, yeah. you know, problems that she yeah. had. I mean, just like worse than any... Yeah, almost horror movie you could watch on Netflix. It's just, just and that's awful the power stuff. of it. It's like when I so when I came to my first meeting and these people would share their stories with me, and I looked at them and they looked like they were just normal everyday people who are doing much better than I ever could dream of doing. It was just amazing to imagine. Wow, you know, you've been where I I've been. Uh, it's just, it's just, well, yeah. And there's the, the delayed effects of it too. I've been around a long time and a lot of the people that I knew early on were 
people my age or even older when I was first coming in, you know, almost 33 years ago. So obviously those people are gone. And now in my old age where I'm looking forward, my older age, of course I'm not old, John, I'm just 71, shit. You know, uh, the, uh, well, I'm looking forward to the inevitabilities that we all have to face. What I somehow recall from the way some of these people were staying sober and pacing their way through the final stages of their life, man, I say, oh, man, that was so incredible. And even today, I can recall some of that, and I don't recall it with any euphoria because these people were friends of mine, and I wish they were still around. There's certainly nothing euphoric about the recall. But the recall is very useful to me today. Like when I started to have health problems and do things like I hadn't spent the night in the hospital until I was 66 years old. And unfortunately, I've spent not months, but many nights in there since. And just having to go through these experiences, remembering what I saw friends of mine who aren't here anymore go through is just of great value. And even, you know, I hear these people going through midlife problems and problems with kids and problems with employers and, you know, other types of problems that I don't have anymore. But I can see the shock of recognition and the light come on in people's eyes of people maybe 30 or more years younger than I am, or 25 years or so. Yeah, they're going through the same stuff. And I see their eyes light up. And that's the sharing process, because you know that someone is going through something similar to what you're going through. And you're not so afraid and alone. And there's nothing lonelier than a drinking alcoholic in a room, is there? I can't think of anything lonelier than that. So sharing, it's a, it's just of an inestimable value. I'm it sorry. is, it is. And, and and as you said, that sometimes the benefit is just from the listening. I, I've, I've gotten to the point, I, I, I often tell people that I feel like I'm more of an observer when I go to meetings anymore because I, I feel like, you know, I, I, I think I've said all I can say. But, but, but just being there and listening, I guess, is um, someone told me that's you're doing what you need to do. That's a good thing that you're doing that. Uh, people need you there to listen. And actually, it does help me. I mean, there's all kinds of, uh, for me, um, what I like is just watching these people um, change and get better. And it's just, it's, just a, it's just something I enjoy. But now I want to talk about, I think, was what the, mo- the most interesting part of what you wrote. It's something that I really never thought of in the terms that you wrote about it. You talk about abstinence. Now, oftentimes I think about abstinence as just, you know, the, the, the not drinking. But you, t- you wrote about abstinence as really the change that comes about simply from being abstinent. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, I had a doctor in 1985 who was a he was a I had all these English people in my life for some reason. I had a very interesting, good English doctor. And I went to him for a medical condition in my inner ear. And somehow I had managed to poison my inner ear with alcohol. 
And Dr. Fenton looked at me and he said, John, you're a smart boy. Don't you know, boy at the time, right? You're a smart <laughs> boy. Don't you know that alcohol is a poison? A moment of revelation, right? And it is a poison. And when we remove poison from our bodies, if we haven't put too much, if you put too much poison in your body, you're going to end up like that poor former FSB guy, Levinenko, who was poisoned by Putin in London. They put a little too much poison in his body, and you die if you put too much poison, just like Levinenko died of the polonium. Alcohol just takes longer than polonium, but it's the same thing. It's a poison. You put enough of it, up, enough of it in your body, and it kills you. And uh, there are even some of these things that people are injecting and using today kill you even a lot quicker than that, than alcohol does. But, boy, I just remember when I took that poison out of my body, at least in my case, I got immediate relief from many things. Absolutely. Isn't that funny? I mean, and, it, it, and it's not connected, it like as you said, person. it's not connected to virtue, self-examination, contrition, no. personality change. No. And you also said moral no. rearmament, which I guess is like a... a right. Well, moral rearmament is what the Oxford group right. evolved that, into. That, are they even still around anymore? I think they were. I believe they are. They call themselves something else. Yeah, they they're changed from moral armament to something else. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're, Trump, they're Trump people for sure. Oh, okay. okay so they, but let's not talk about that. Let's not talk about that. Right. We know what right. they are. Right. So uh, you get me... St- then I'll start... Have I used profanity yet? Again, I keep uh, asking yeah. you. I don't even remember. Maybe a couple times. We'll have to look at but the What I find interesting is that... I, I, okay, there was a guy in our meeting um, who said that, you know, he doesn't have anything to do with the steps. He says, I, th- I think that... All of that is what any normal, decent person would do anyway after they stop drinking. And when you stop to think about it, yeah, you kind of when you when you when you take that out of your life and you and you, so you're taking the poison out of your body, you're no longer physically sick, you're thinking better, you're no longer having the life problem, so now your life is together. Um, you just start doing things that a normal person would do. You start, you start right. rebuilding right. Your, your, your relationships. You start asking yourself right. questions about what you had been doing and how you might be doing things differently. But it's so funny that um, that is what was bringing about the change. And yet the people back in the Oxford group and even, and even a lot of us in AA today think that the change was the self-examination and all of no, the other well, stuff. No, even, you need to have a spiritual experience to be good, okay? And the best people, I, the best group of people I've ever met, ever, are people in recovery. They're the, I, I've said this elsewhere. They're the, just the top level of human being. And in all of my experience, again, I'm sorry if I'm being redundant, I've only met a couple of sociopaths in AA. There are sociopaths in AA. There are, there are horrific stories about sociopaths getting themselves into uh, particularly involved in, you know, sexual issues and stuff like that. But, you know, the, the, the vast, vast, vast majority of people in AA behave in ways that are far superior to what I see 
on the outside. Did I use the initials AA? Secular recovery. Okay, yeah, I did. Well, you know, I mean, I'm, I've got this this involuntary tick I have to uh, fully eliminate. But the people in recovery that I've met, their behavior generally is superior. So it's not because of some sort of intercession of some sort of thing from the outside. It's because your better self gets to emerge when you're not poisoning your brainstem and the frontal lobes and the rest of the cerebral cortex with this poison. Your brain starts it's functioning again. You start, yeah, it, it, it really does kind of make sense. You describe it as kind of a gradual, subtle change, and, and it is. And, and I, I, can, I can totally understand how people would, you know, this is, this is the essence of religion. You're trying to explain something that you don't understand, you know. So they come up, right. with, they come up with these um, myths for how the world was created. And then we later find out that that really isn't the way it was, was done. So it's almost like, you know, you know, it was that it was the not drinking that changed your life. It wasn't that change in your life got you to right. stop drinking. Right, right. Which is brings me around to the other point I think I was trying to make in that part of the pieces was I cannot believe and it's and maybe this is just my own uh, diehard faith that I've developed over all these years. I cannot believe people that do not see abstinence as the absolute value that it is. It clearly is. It's the only thing that works, really works, for people like us. People look at it, and I did, as the outcome and not the solution. It's the absolute solution. The outcome is up to you. You're a free agent. You have free will, as the Catholics would say. It's almost like they had it backwards. It's that you do these things and you be, and you maintain abstinence, when, when in fact, if you maintain abstinence, these things will just kind of happen. Yeah, it's crazy. All right, it's just ass backwards. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and, and it, you know, I'm supposed to be grateful to something. I'm grateful in general. Every morning I wake up with somebody I'm, totally nuts about in love with. I have two kids that are doing unbelievable things. My brain's still able to function when I need to go out and work, which unfortunately I still need to do not a lot, but from time to time for various reasons. I've got to go strange places and do my job that I know how to do for years and years of work in this field I'm in. And, you know, it, you know, I'm, it, it, it's a hundred percent of it is because I'm not loaded today. Not 50%, not 75%. The, the agent behind that ability to do what I can do as a person is the fact that I am abstinent today, which is why I'm not going to go into this stuff. There's going to be plenty of people coming to Bethesda 2020 that will be talking about things like harm reduction and, you know, we've got, I'll, I, you know, we've got John Stewart coming over with a whole other uh, view of things than, you know, maybe I do on the subject of harm reduction. There'll be others there for sure about that. But I just personally, I do not understand why the first thing that, and well, first and last in many of these schemes isn't the absolute insistence upon the efficacy 
of abstinence. Now, that doesn't mean that everybody is going to become abstinent or stay abstinent, but that's the goal always to me. I can't see any other goal for people that have the kind of condition I developed over the 23 years that I drank from age 15 to age 38 and the shape I was in when I finally got around to showing up. The only thing, absolutely the only thing that would ever, ever have worked for me is abstinence. I owe my life to it. So why there's this even discussion about it, but as if it was too hard, of course it's hard. Of course life is hard. What's harder, abstinence or dying on the street or in a loony bin? Oh, God, I know I said something politically incorrect now. Dying in a facility somewhere, right, from this condition. I once had a medical, somebody I knew that was a medical student tell me that they estimated that in every general hospital in the United States, I don't know whether this was scientifically correct, this is just one young doctor told me this one time, that something like 50 or 60% of the patients that were in hospitals at any one given time had something to do with alcohol or drugs. And on the weekend in ERs, the percentage is even higher. Now, I don't know whether that's absolutely true or not, but I know that's a giant percentage of people that are in medical extremists have had too much to drink. So, you know, I just, to me, it's just extraordinary. And it really surprised me that I even had to sort of discuss that question in all of this. But when I looked around at the literature and I looked around at so much of this stuff about controlled drinking and cognitive behavioral, behavioral therapy and all these other modalities and things, I just knew more and more and more that for me, the only thing that worked was stopping, right? And I think there's a, I think there's a growing number of people who have nothing to do with AA where this is the key. I, I, I read a book not long ago, The Unexpected Joy of Being Sober by Catherine Gray, and she writes about this, the importance of abstinence. And she writes about how alcohol is bad for anybody. As you said, it's a poison. And that it, alcoholism, or what you might want to call it, it kind of, kind of is on a, on a scale. It's on a, you know, it's on a, you know, some people have it really bad and some people don't have it so bad. But for anybody, the, to not drink is better for you than to drink. But certainly, once you've become addicted to alcohol, the not drinking is the whole essence of the recovery. Um, you won't get better. Um, your life won't get better if, if you don't maintain abstinence. And then it's the, the, sh- the meetings and the sharing. And in her case, she has nothing to do with AA, but she has friends. She has, she has people who do support her and are, and they're doing it together, you know? So, yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it's it, just the analogy would be, let's talk about alcoholics and how messed up they get and how terrible their condition is. If any woman that was eight and a half months pregnant walked into a bar and appeared to have had a drink and ordered another drink, how many people would serve that lady? I'd like to think the answers about zero would be served. But if we're shit-faced, obviously in extremists, 
but we're not beating up anybody or causing a ruckus. When we walk up to the bar, even though it's pretty obvious with the red face, the broken pupils and the general demeanor that we're just out of our freaking minds, the question is, what are you having? So I, in many ways, I don't think we view alcohol intake and alcoholics as seriously from a medical standpoint as we would that kind of awful example I gave of an obviously pregnant lady going to get another drink. It, to me, it's analogous, and we don't do that. We still normalize it. Uh, there are people that can drink normally, like members of my family can drink normally. I can't, all right? I'm sitting in a club the other night listening to somebody that my wife and I really like. She can have a glass of wine because that's all she has, and I can have a Diet Coke, and that's all I could have. <laughs> I can't have. I mean, I could drink something that my endocrinologist doesn't like it when I drink Diet Coke. I suppose I could have ordered Perrier. But still, I can't drink anything with alcohol in it. I can't. And, you know, we just, by trying to tell people that really can't drink that they can, that to me is pernicious. And I guess I've just rendered an opinion on some of this stuff I said I wouldn't have opinions on. But that's just me. What can I say? So we're coming up on an hour, so let's talk about helping others. So basically, you know, we're, we're attending meetings and we're, we're forming friendships. Um, we're helping people as we, as we become friends. Oh, I know something you wrote that I totally agree with. Give people space. Don't smother them. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, if someone, I'll give you an example. There's uh, someone I know who's very ill, who had about 11 years of sobriety and uh, a bit younger than I am. And I've got to be careful. I don't want to go into too much detail. But he disappeared for about two years. And I found out that he was probably in the most desperate of desperate straits because here was a guy who was a very accomplished professional and I someone told me that he had been panhandling to buy alcohol because his wife had cut off his accounts he couldn't get a hold of his money because the wife had cut him off and he calls me up and the bottom line for me with this guy was well, it's your choice, but if you make the choice, myself and I listed a, several other friends that were involved in trying to help, we will do anything you ask us to do within reason to be of assistance. Please know that. We care about you, you we love you, but we, the only thing we can do is respond to your request. Will you meet me for coffee next week? Was my only request of him. Of course, he didn't show up. So these situations are very sad, and we do our best, 
but we do have to give people their autonomy and their space. This may sound heretical to some, but if you're not killing anyone else, if it's your decision to kill yourself and you're not totally, completely impaired, if you make a decision to kill yourself, what can I do? If that's really what you're going to do, what can I do to interfere with that decision? That may sound a little harsh, but people deserve their autonomy. But that said, if anybody gives even the slightest indication that they need our help, when we do help them, we get a lot more back than we ever gave. And that's the paradox of that part. That sounds a little selfish, but it's true. What I was thinking about is letting, giving people space to just feel like they're safe, they're, they're somewhere where they can trust you and, and, be, and, 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 and they're at a place where they can get better without having to be pushed. Let me give you an example. In the Midwest where I live, and I don't know if it's this way where you live, but when a newcomer shows up at an AA meeting, they give them what's called a first step meeting. And a first step meeting is when people go around the room and they talk to that person and they talk about their drinking and they might give them advice or suggestions or whatever. So that newcomer, that person at the first meeting who's already jittery and afraid is the center of attention at that meeting. So our group, when we started up in um, our, the We Agnostics group in Kansas City, initially we, we thought that that's what we would do. We thought that's what people in AA do. But we were noticing that, that we were scaring people away. <laughs> so we stopped doing that. And so what we do instead is when somebody shows up to our meeting and they're new, we don't, we don't treat them any differently. We welcome them. We give them a cup of coffee. We make them feel comfortable. But we don't make them the center of attention. We don't, you know what I'm saying? Do you guys have, is that a custom in D.C.? Do you guys have those well, sorts of we, meetings? Well, we, inevitably, if somebody's new, particularly if somebody is really shaky or they're there and they, they indicate that they're really sort of in extreme circumstances, that will change a bit subsequent shares, all right, and the emphasis. But there's never a formal way. There's a young man I know that's been recently uh, coming to see us, and he was so uptight, he wouldn't say a word for about the first month. And we left him alone, right? We just said, we're glad you're here. Uh, occasionally be asked to share and he'd say, I don't want to, or it's not time or whatever. Nobody put their finger in the guy's face. And the last few weeks, the guys just opened up and started to share much more openly than I thought he ever might do. And that was because he was basically left alone and nobody's badgering him and saying, why didn't you call me this week? Here's my number you got to call me on Tuesday or some bullshit like that. If somebody wants a number, we've got a phone list, and people can use the phone list. And we can say something like, well, if you ever need to talk, we're around and that sort of thing. But we don't go beating people over the head. That's never been the way. 
you know, and I think back when I when I was uh, starting out, I uh, I was pretty quiet in meetings. It took me a while bef- before I before I would um, actually openly share in meetings. But after the meeting was done, I was out the door immediately. And uh, I so, you know, people people need their space. It takes it takes it takes time. And and we just can't assume that everybody should should be treated the same. Another thing I really hate, though, is um, forcing um, yourself on someone as their sponsor. Oh man. Oh man. Is that ever the worst? I do not like that. And I don't know what to do about it, but it doesn't, it doesn't happen at our group. I don't think it really happens to the secular groups as much as it does at some of the more um, rigid groups where, well, you know, some of these Clancy groups in particular, they, they put such a weird emphasis on sponsorship that it's, it's bizarre, quite frankly. And, and I know they, they make you, some of them make you call, Three different That's members right. every day. There's a group in KC that does that, and you and plus you report to your sponsor about your your calls during the day. You know that that seems more like the Handmaid's Tale to uh-huh. me. And if you don't okay. do something right, your sponsor sponsor comes down on you. Yeah, they're grand sponsors. <laughs> right, right. You know, my great 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 grand sponsor was in the Civil War. You know. <laughs> He was drinking bourbon at Gettysburg. You know, it's really freaky. It's really weird. And, and, you know, I've written about sponsorship. I can see some good, good in it, but I think there, I think there's some caution that should be played there as well. Uh, You know, if, if somebody is really pushing themselves on you to be their sponsor, you know, what would just, just be a little wary of that. Um, I, 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 that really kind of concerns me, but um, anyway, yeah, I, I liked what you had to say about that. Well, you know, sometimes you're somebody's sponsor by accident. I've actually had, a friend of mine tell me that he considered me his sponsor and I had no idea. Okay. Cause we used to sit around and have coffee after the meeting and talk about kids and work and family and stuff like that. And, you know, uh, I never knew he considered me in that regard cause I just don't pay that much attention to that sort of locution about things. But you know, if we're there and we're trying to help, we get back more than we give. So the bottom line is the more, if you, but there's the the help with caution stuff, which you very kindly pointed out, which is that we shouldn't be foisting ourselves on someone. If they, my feeling is you can, you can make yourself available. If someone needs your help, they're going to ask for it. And if they don't need your help, you're not going to hear from them. And it has just, it's not on you. It's on, it's what they need. Okay. If I needed help amongst the people that I know, I have a endless, I have, you know, a core group of people I could call upon anytime, day or night. And I've got at least a couple of them who would fly across the world, literally, to help me if I needed that. I never needed that. But it's a nice thing to know that there are people in the world who you're not related to who care about you. That's not a bad thing. That's a that's a good thing. So, but there are always limits. I mean, if someone, I I, I don't want to go into, but I've encountered situations where people abuse those relationships and they rely too much on. They make it as if someone like a sponsor, could get them sober. 
at least that's sometimes, you know, you know, it's, I, I, I use it now. I had a very good friend of mine who was undergoing some very difficult treatment for a mental illness. And we were no more qualified to treat his condition than I am to wave a magic wand over a drinking alcoholic. You get to a certain point with alcoholism, it becomes a medical problem, not a program problem. But the important thing with my friend, at least he told me after he came through out, out of all of this horror he went through, and he came through and he started to get better and better and better, he just said that to just know that you guys had come and visited me and that you had sent me some emails and that you cared, that was wonderful. That was good for me. But we had very little to do with his recovery from that particular condition. But making ourselves available is important because at least someone knows there is someone there. As long as they don't depend on you and th depend on you to the extent that they think that you're the magic sauce that's going to make them sober. No, they make, they making their decision and taking affirmative steps to get and stay sober is what's going to get them through. You helping them is good, and you do it partially because you get such good positive reinforcement back to yourself. But we're not miracle workers, John. I'm sure you're on board with that. I'm positive of that. Ain't no miracles here. To wrap things up, John, is there anything that you're that you're trying to achieve by writing and speaking about these things? Or are you just doing right. tell us? Let me tell you, okay? I was accused, right, of being overly negative about my opinions about this dreaded initials that I'm not gonna mention and their literature and all of that stuff. And I've had it said to me, well, I've had it, some people say to me, we love what you do, blah, 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 blah. Others have said, oh, you're so negative, you're paying the ass, you're this, you're that. And I said, well, what I'm trying to do on the one hand is say that there's no one size fits all or simplified set of rules or instructions or list of things to do in sobriety as I see it. And I get very vocal about it because I feel that people have been harmed by those approaches. But on the other hand, I sort of get the point. If you're saying what doesn't work, well then what the hell does work for you? And I wanted to clearly articulate that I found some solutions for myself that work for me, which are totally positive, and that I come around and that I'm associated for positive, not negative reasons. Because people can misconstrue folks that have vocal opinions about things, be it recovery programs or politics or whatever, and they can misinterpret who and what you are. What I wanted to sort of postulate here was that not all hardcore atheists are totally negative, that we see a positive and affirmative way forward in recovery, and that these things are things that I see as positive that made up the components 
of what I call my own recovery. So that was the primary. And, and then possibly that these things, when they're presented in this way, could possibly be of assistance to someone else. Well, I think that anybody who reads them, um, if they've been, if they've been exposed to recovery in, in, in any kind of, um, form, um, would find agreement to them because it is kind of like a natural process. I think of, of what happens and you laid it out really well, you know, we're going to post these. Thank you for allowing us to do that on AA beyond belief. We'll do that as a, as a series. I don't think we're going to post them in the steps section though. I don't know what section. I don't think you're going to want, I don't think you're going to want me in Kansas city at your step. No, no. I don't think that would be a necessarily a positive thing for you guys. The funny thing about that, that, that has Midwest. become like the less, the least popular meeting that we have here. So anyway. Well, maybe it will die a natural It probably death. will. I, I'll, I'll be happy to be the agent of euthanasia out there on that one if you want me to be. But I'll let you guys deal with that on your own. But thank you, John. I really appreciated this chance to talk with you. You did a great job here, and um, I really look forward to um, posting this podcast and uh, posting those articles. So uh, again, thank yeah, you very well, much for your you. work. Thank you. We'll, we'll see if it resonates for people out there or not. Okay. We'll see you later. Well, how about that? John's pretty interesting to speak with. I, I really uh, enjoy having him on the podcast and we'll have him back on again sometime. Um, I also look forward to seeing him in Washington, D.C. in October of 2020 for the International Conference of Secular AA, which will be held in Bethesda, Maryland. To learn more about that, you can go to the Secular AA website, secularaa.org. So before I leave, let me just uh, remind you that our site and podcast can certainly use your support financially and any other way. Uh, You can support us by making small recurring donations either through Patreon at patreon.com slash aabeyondbelief or PayPal at paypal.me slash aabeyondbelief. And you can always go to our website, aabeyondbelief.org, and click on the donate button and make a one-time contribution or even set up recurring donations. Any little bit is needed and appreciated. So thanks again for listening. We'll be back again real soon for another episode of AA Beyond Belief, the podcast.